you to join me in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 this morning. As you are turning and as our children are departing uh, with joy and happiness in their hearts, uh, just a couple of announcements, really one major announcement. This is a, a great time of year, and we are taking advantage of it, not only by being outside, but also by going out to the park to have a picnic. So this afternoon, immediately following service, we're going to make our way down Rogers Road. That's the road right here. And when you get to the stoplight at the end of it, take a left, and uh, there will be a park right down the road. Uh, we'll be there in Roseville, the Main Street Park in Roseville. We're going to have a great time together. Uh, if you want to stop by and pick up some uh, treats or, or food at a local food restaurant and bring them on with you, if you would like, uh, we've got some charcoal we'll be uh, lighting up to anybody who wants to make use of that as well. Uh, I think that's the only announcement. Uh, let's begin now. Acts chapter 15. We're going to read the first uh, 18 verses. Acts 15. Here now. The word of the Lord. Then certain individuals came down from Judah and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. And so they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together and considered this matter. After there was much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles should hear the good news and become believers. But And God, who knows the human heart, testifies to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he made them no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The whole assembly kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophet as it is written, After this, I will return and will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen from its ruins. I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that all the other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Aretha Franklin has a song. It was originally written by uh, Sam Cooke and performed by him a few years earlier. But, you know, when, when the Queen of Soul does a song, it becomes, it becomes hers. The, the song that she kind of made and has been done a few more times is, was entitled, A Change is Going to Come. It, it opens with these words. I was born by the river in a little tent. And just like that river, I've been running ever since. It's been a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. I go down to the movies, I go downtown, and someone tells me not to hang around. It's been a long time coming, but I know a change is gonna come. It's a song of, of passion and hope. It is a song of, of humble origins and struggle and hardship but how that persistent dream of a future that is better than the present and the past pulls them forward. It is a song that still resonates today with those who are oppressed and beat down, that desire systems of injustice to change. But not everyone is so eager for things to change, especially if you were born on the right side of the tracks. If you were born in the nice suburbs with a green lawn and a little picket fence, if, if your life is stayed and settled and secure, you might not be so eager for that change that's going to come. For some, change is not looked forward with hope and expectation. It is feared with dread. Change, though, has always been a part of the early church. In just a, a few weeks, we will be celebrating the, the feast day of Pentecost. This moment when the fire from heaven fell on the unsuspecting church and changed them in ways that they could not imagine. A few months before our reading in, in Acts chapter 15, the Holy Spirit had done just that. It had rushed forth upon this group of shepherds and fishermen in that upper room, and that mighty wind had blown, and the unsuspecting city had been set ablaze by the proclamation that Jesus had risen. And as those disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit, went out and preached the good news, God added to their numbers. And with each baptism, with each meal, with each shared moment together, that church changed. They grew until they get to Acts 15 and there's this watershed moment of change. Before Acts 15, the story had been focused on the apostles. Uh, they were doing in and around Jerusalem. There had been a few excursions out to the countryside, but most of the early church had been focused in that geographical city. And after Acts 15, the story shifts. Paul, the apostle who was transformed on the Damascus road, he is sent out to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He starts out on these missionary journeys. And the, the locust shifts. So Acts 15 is this really big deal. It's a, it's a hinge point, not only in the story of Acts, but in the story of Christian faith. 
It describes what will become known as the first council of the Christian church, the council of Jerusalem. And it sets the stage for how we followers of Jesus deal with trouble. Because they had trouble right there in River City. Trouble with a capital T and that rhymes with P and that stands for pool, which really has nothing to do with the problems they were facing. And so in the midst of this trouble, they they get together and they have a debate. They have a council. They sit down and they argue. They figure things out. And the key question that they're trying to figure out was how do you solve a problem like the Gentiles? You know where I'm going. How do you take a cloud and pin it down? This is really, though, the the climax to a story that's been building for a long time. Luke, back in his gospel, he he starts where he's going to end almost at the very beginning in Luke chapter 2. Jesus is presented to the, uh, in the temple. And Simeon, this old man who hung around the temple all day, he grabs that baby out of his mother's arm and he starts to prophesy. And he says this, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. And he is the glory of your people, Israel. Nations there is the word goy, and it means all of the people who were not Jewish. This baby is going to be a light in the darkness, and that light will shine upon anyone, no matter your history or your creed. This theme gets continued. This light shining beyond the covenant of God's people in Acts chapter 8, excuse me, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. There, the the writer says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, through Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Last week, we saw the story of Philip in the wake of of Stephen's martyrdom, going out and, and and witnessing to whoever he finds, even that Ethiopian eunuch, one who is outside the boundaries outside the standards and norms, but who was embraced and discipled and baptized. In Acts chapter 10, the story continues where Peter is up on the roof and he's praying and he has this vision of a, of a tablecloth coming down. And there are snakes and rats and lizards and bugs. And the spirit says to him, go and find something delicious and eat. And Peter says, all that stuff's unclean. And the Spirit says, whom I have called clean, who are you to call unclean? After that, Peter gets up and he goes to Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and he preaches to him and his whole house is baptized. In chapter 12, Paul and Barnabas, they go out on their first missionary journey into the the wilds of the Gentile world. And what Luke is doing from the very beginning when Simeon takes up the baby Jesus to now is showing that the boundaries of God's kingdom have no limits. That God is in the process of reaching out to those whom had been forgotten. In Acts chapter 11, verse 19, it tells the story of some unnamed disciples who in the midst of the persecution that followed Stephen's death, they they found themselves out in the Gentile world and they started to, to preach. 
And those unnamed disciples find themselves in Antioch, this Gentile city. And that's what those early, those early disciples did. They didn't know any better than to find a neighbor and tell them how their life had been transformed and changed by the name of Jesus. And so they started to share the good news. Wherever they went with whoever they met, they would talk about Jesus conquering death. They would tell the story of his resurrection. They would proclaim Jesus as Lord. That's a really important phrase. Not Jesus as the Christ, not Jesus as the Messiah. Those were Jewish words. But Jesus as Lord. Curion Yeson, Luke chapter, Acts eleven twenty, Lord Jesus. You see those unnamed Cyprians and Cyrenes, they didn't preach Jesus as the Christ, they preached Jesus as Lord. A word that would have made sense to their Greek-speaking world in Antioch. Lords were something they knew about. Every piece of money that they carried had a, a picture of the Lord, Caesar, upon it. The immortal one who demanded loyalty. They carried around the images of the Lord on earth everywhere they went. And they were reminded that Caesar was in charge. That Caesar was the one who held life and death in his hands. And here are these disciples from Jerusalem scattered about in their poem. And they're daring to tell them that no, it's not Caesar that's Lord. It is Jesus. For it is Jesus who conquered death in the grave and rose again. That's not just a theological change, though. This preaching was, to use Cavan Rowe's phrase, a re-socialization. You see, Roman society was designed a lot like our society. It was designed intentionally to keep those in, in places of power in places of power. And it was designed to keep those on the margins on the margins. Keep the rich in place and make them happy. In our society, we have things like the mortgage interest deduction, which, you know, I, I benefit from. That helps out me, and it doesn't help out those who rent their homes. We have other tax policies that benefit those who have something already. We have structures in place that actively keep certain people out. Most famously, back in the 1960s, there was the policy called redlining, where banks got together and they drew with red pins little circles around uh, certain neighborhoods there were poorer neighborhoods, and they made sure that those interest rates were higher to keep people out. Not just a problem back then. When you look at the last few uh, uh, spikes and booms in the marketplace, when you look at the, the recessions that have happened, it is those who are on the outskirts that have been hurt. The wealth that was destroyed is in the poor communities. That was Roman society in a nutshell. And all then, these men in Antioch, they begin to preach that Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar with his systems of oppression and injustice, but Jesus, the one who cares for even those who are outsiders. And as they preach, everything changes. Those social divisions that have been built from years and tradition begin to crack and crumble. And the disciples start to welcome everyone, everywhere, and they take care of each other. In verse 21, Luke tells us that a great number became believers and they turned to the Lord. 
pretty soon the, the news of this revival starts to trickle its way back down to Jerusalem First Church about how the Gentiles are coming in. And so the church, the assembly, the ecclesia there, they send out Barnabas to check on them, let's see what's going on. And he gets really excited. That's what Barnabas does. He gets excited about stuff. And he goes, and as he's excited, he, he comes and goes to Tarshish and gets Saul, Paul. And then they go together and they spend in a whole year living and preaching and discipling and celebrating the large crowds at Antioch. And it's there in that place, that Gentile city, that Christians are named Christians. The Gentiles then come into the assembly, to the ecclesia, and they change it. And as they come in droves, there are certain people who are uncertain of them. There are people who are in power and who are comfortable with the way things are. And they're not really sure about these new people. In chapter 15, verse 5, it's, it says this, But some of the believers who belong to the sect of the Pharisees, stood up and they said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised in order, in order to keep the law of Moses. Pharisees. Pharisees are never the good guy in, in Luke's gospel. Whenever he is writing, he, he always makes them the, the villains, the bad guys, the one who throw water on the hot fire of Jesus. And my, and my, you know, my, my intentions of, of defending the bad guy and taking the, uh, the non-traditional route, I always want to defend the Pharisees. Something you probably shouldn't do. But because, I, you know, I think it's impetuous because I understand them. They are out to protect the institution. And institutions don't handle change very well. And this change is a, is a crisis that not only threatens the peace of the community, but raises a fundamental question concerning the community's identity and the grounds for its fellowship. You see, the church at that time had been kind of homogeneous. It was, it was all the same. The people spoke the same language. They had the same customs. They, they were familiar with the same pattern of life. And here were foreigners. Here were strangers who didn't speak the language who didn't know the customs, who did weird things in church. In Acts 15, the people are grappling with who is in and who is out. They're struggling with what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus when all of a sudden the Gentiles come in. And this is the question, by the way, that's going to dominate the rest of the New Testament. Paul in his letters keeps coming back to this same question. What does it mean for the Gentiles? What does it mean for us who are here this morning to be a part of this story, to be grafted into a Jewish Messiah, to be part of the tradition that started with Abraham and was handed down to Moses? To put it another way, how do they stay true to their doctrinal purity how do they maintain their moral excellence if these unclean, uncircumcised, uncouth Gentiles are part of the group? 
It's a question of how much can we change and still be who we are. And so what do they do? Well, in verse 6, the apostles and the elders, that, that phrase gets kitty peeping repeated. The apostles, those who were called by Jesus and then sent out by Christ. The elders, those who had been founded in the kingdom, who had been there on the day of Pentecost and been transformed by the Holy Spirit. This group of leaders gets together. They meet together to resolve the issue. I think Luke plays it down a little bit. You know, he, he uses this language. They, they had a discussion. I don't think it was a discussion. In, in verse 2, he says there was no small dissension and debate. When I hear Luke say that there was a discussion between the elders and the apostles, I hear some yelling. I hear some words that don't really make it into the New Testament being thrown around. I, I see a chair flying across the room at some point. But they get together. They hear the stories. And then they start to reflect. Peter stands up and talks, and they hear some more stories. And then James, the brother of Jesus, who is considered the pastor of Jerusalem first, he, he stands up and he reads Scripture together. And through this process, messy and cumbersome, through this process of, of discussion and prayer and Scripture reading, they work things out. In light of the resurrection, the disciples didn't say, well, we've always believed this. This is who we are as a people, so we're going to hold to our guns and keep to our principles. They said, let's talk about it. And they didn't elect a board or, or go through a process of Robert's rules. They did it messy and, and uncertain, and they just kind of went into it theologically and scripturally. And then they looked around at the examples, those who were being transformed, those who were living faithful lives. And somehow, by the power of the Spirit living within them, they came together. And there's something, there's something radically profound in this story. They don't hunker down in the past. They don't find themselves safely behind the walls of purity and morality. They don't hold on to their doctrinal identity. They change. Not everything goes. They don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. They hold on to those things that are necessary. They keep things like table fellowship. Verse 15, excuse me, chapter 15, verse 20 outlines those things that they keep. They don't eat meat that's been strangled or that was practiced used in pagan worship. They are to abstain from immoral practices that went on in the Roman temple so that believers from different cultures can sit at a meal together. But outside of those kind of special things that they hold on to, the church steps into the future and it looks different. And in this process... Not only does the church grow and expand, not only do the, the Gentiles become a part of the family of God, but the believers themselves in Jerusalem, they change. They come to understand just how radical God's grace is. And they find freedom. Verse 11 says, We believe 
that we are all saved in the same way. Not by our past, not by our traditions, not by our, our doctrinal purity or our moral excellence. We are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. And in this crazy way, God's Spirit uses those outsiders to witness and transform the insiders. God uses the salvation of the Gentiles to reveal to the Jewish believers the true ground of their own salvation. It's like as all these strange outsiders start showing up and being a part of the community that the insiders realize how truly strange, how truly radical, how truly transformative is God's grace. My friends, God is doing something powerful in our lives. He is transforming and changing us every day. Not just the day you were saved, not that moment you were sanctified, but every moment that you live and breathe, God is calling you to pursue and form and inform the shape of his son. His Holy Spirit is living within us and sanctifying us even now. But here is the message from Acts 15. That if we're going to understand that profound and radical change that is and has been taking place in our lives, it's only going to happen as we start to engage with people who are different. With people who don't look like us or have the same tradition as us or follow with the same language as us. You won't understand your salvation until you find someone to tell the story of it to. Until you see the difference in what God is doing in their lives. You know, we as a people, as, as Nazarenes, if I can just talk in-house for just a moment, we've done this before. Our tradition in emphasizing the sanctifying and holiness of God and God's activity among and ongoing in the earth, we've changed and we've molded, we've moved. There was a time when Nazarenes didn't know televisions, when we didn't cut our hair or, well, I would always cut my hair because, you know, guys did, but girls didn't, when we didn't wear uh, jewelry or, or pants, when we wore coats and ties. There was a time when if you got a divorce, you were outside the boundaries of grace. There was a time when outsiders were kept outsiders. And we have moved. We have changed. After a time of considerable debate, we saw the signs and the wonders that were being performed. We saw those people who we didn't think fit in all of a sudden demonstrating the faithfulness of God and being true disciples of Jesus. And we realized that owning a TV wasn't wrong. That wearing jewelry or having a divorce or modestly dancing, it didn't distract you and lead you away from the kingdom of God. And yet, even as we moved and changed through the years, we still held on to things that were important and a part of our identity. We have held on to the message that God is alive in the earth and by His Holy Spirit, He brings about real and substantial change in people's lives. We've held on to the message that holiness is there for you to grow into, 
that you can, despite your baggage and shame and hurt, reflect the love of God around you. And as we've changed and grown, as we've discussed and debated, as we've thrown the occasional chair around our boardrooms, we have seen God's Spirit spark in us anew. And we have seen the church grow. It's not easy to change, especially when you are comfortable and stayed and secured. I, I don't know how that applies to us as a church right now, sitting in the sun and chairs that aren't the best, sitting in our cars, maybe wanting the AC to come on about now, uncertain of our future and insecure about our past. It's not fun. It's not easy. But the gospel is always changing, transforming, making new, sanctifying, and baptizing. Today, God is calling us to something different. I don't know what that is. I don't have a, a silver ball. But I know that God has been working in us as a people and in His church to bring about revival, to bring about newness, to bring about life. And it is so good to see God's breath, to see God's Spirit bring about transformation. My friends, as we lean into the uncertain future, as we go forth, hearing God's calling, may we do so with change in our hearts, with a willing spirit in our minds, and with the utmost sincerity. Let us pray together. And now, Lord Christ, I thank you, O oh God, that by your Spirit you spoke into the lives of Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas and to the apostles and the elders in that first council of Jerusalem. And that you opened the walls of division. That you broke down the doors of division. And you brought us together, O oh God, Jews and Gentiles, so that we who are here might sit at the table together. And I pray, O oh God, as we go forward, might we be supple in your hands. Might we be willing in your leadership. And might we listen to see how those who are outsiders can be made insiders. And might we perceive, O oh God, the ways that your hand is working in the world already to transform and make new. And may, O oh God, as we evangelize and share, May we see afresh what you are doing in our lives. This we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus the Lord. All those who are able, I would invite you to join me standing as we worship together. <laughs>